But with all that said, let's take our Bible and go to James chapter 4. James 4. I just love this little book of James. And we're already in chapter 4, and I want to start over again in chapter 1 because there's so much there in this wonderful little letter. But we'll keep going. We'll keep going. We're in chapter 4, verses 4 to 10 today. This is really kind of part 2 with what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 3 on anger and the source of quarrels among us. I'm going to preach today these verses, a sermon that I've entitled, The Key to Unity in Relationships. And that key to unity is a humble, single-minded love for God. I'm going to read all of James 4, just beginning in verse 1, so we get the whole context. Follow with me. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Conflict, conflict, conflict. Jimmy went to First Baptist Church. He attended for a while, but there was very obvious conflict and quarreling among the men's ministry that he began to attend and and the outreach teams, and he didn't want to jump into all of that conflict. The team leaders he saw would actually raise their voices and argue with one another in public. And then they would give each other the cold shoulder and the silent treatment. And he thought, I don't want to be part of that. So he goes down the road to Second Baptist Church. On the other side of town, he attends for a while, but there was quarreling and conflicts there amongst the people because of different political views, social issues, personal preferences, and opinions on just living habits. And there were cliques and factions and divisions and so many conflicts, it just made attending church awkward for Jimmy. He didn't want to go there, so he left. So he goes to Third Baptist Church. It's in the middle of downtown. He goes and he notices 
that the pastoral staff and the elders of Third Baptist Church are not seeing eye to eye. They, they couldn't agree on the vision of the church, the plan of the church, the purpose of the church. A man had an agenda for this, and a man had a dream for that, and a man had a vision for this. And some people wanted to soften the message, and some wanted to shorten the church service, and, and he thought they can't figure out what church is. And there were conflicts that ensued, and he thought, I don't want to go there. So he left. And he went to Fourth Baptist Church on the edge of the city. And it was clear when he walked in the door that quarrels and conflicts abounded because when he entered, people began to share the secrets of others and gossip about others and slander others in the church. And Jimmy thought, I certainly don't want to go there. Jimmy leaves Fourth Baptist Church. And he lifts his arms up and he says that very familiar phrase, can't we all just get along? Can't we get along? Why is there so much conflict in the church? And and where does unity come? How do you get and maintain unity in the church. What's the key? I mean, every every believer wants unity. Every believer wants humility. Every believer wants harmony in the church. We want joy in the church. But the question is, how do we get it? And how do we maintain it? That's the question that James asks, and that's the question that James asks. Answers. If you're going to have unity in the church, James says, you must maintain a humble, single-minded love for God. You heard that right. If we are to have unity in the church, we must maintain a humble, single-minded love for God. And if we do that, here's what our text is going to teach in verse 4. You're going to be single-minded in your devotion to God and in his lordship. And then in verses 5 and 6, James is going to say, you're going to be awed by the love of God for you. You're going to respond to that by being humble in heart. And then in verses 7 to 10, If we really are humble with a single-minded love for God, we're going to be serious about our sin, and we are going to seriously fight for holiness. In this wonderful little book of James, James is writing to early Jewish Christians, chapter 1, verse 1, and they're going through trials. And in this wonderful little letter that Pastor James is writing, he calls for uncompromising obedience. You say you're a Christian. Live it out. Show it. Prove it. Demonstrate it. Real faith is a living faith, a vibrant faith, a Faith that is demonstrated by good works. This is a book, it's a little letter that says true faith is a working faith. True faith is an obedient faith. True faith is a living, active faith. Is your faith real? That's what James would say. Is your faith real? Well, in chapter 1, he says if if you have a true and living faith, you're going to endure trials joyfully. You're going to hear and obey the word of God. 
In chapter 2, if you have a true and living and vibrant faith, you're going to shun favoritism and you're going to seek to demonstrate your faith by a good a life of good works. And then in chapter 3, if you really have a vibrant and living faith, you're going to show that by taming and guarding your tongue and then living by heavenly wisdom. Not worldly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom. And then in chapter 4, oh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. If we are going to have this humility and unity and harmony and joy in the church, he says we need to understand the root of our conflict. We have to understand what is the source of our quarrels. Where does our anger, where does our fighting, where does our bickering all come from? Where does it come from? Verses 1 to 3, it comes from you and me, our own hearts. And that's what verse 1 says, is not the source your pleasures, my desires that are waging war in my members. Verse 2, I lust, I crave, I desire, I, here's the key word, I want. And when I don't get what I want, I respond with anger and fighting and quarreling. So the root of our conflict we saw last week is our own selves. It's our ruling desires. It's the things that we want so bad. And if we don't get it, we respond with anger. And we looked at that, verses 1 to 3, last week. So verses 4 to 10 is really sort of part two to that. Okay, if the root of the conflict and the root of my anger and the root of my quarrels It's not you, it's not society, it's not my background, it's not my heritage, it's not the people at work, it's not all these things. The root of my problems is me. Well, then how do we have unity in the church? How are we going to have humility in the church? How are we going to get along in the church? Now, I got to say this carefully and I got to say this clearly in order to get it right. I want you to hear this. Our passage today is going to show that we have problems horizontally with other people, interpersonal conflicts, because, listen carefully, because we're prideful and because we don't love God rightly. Now, people say, well, I just need to love other people more. James would say, "Mm, that's good, but that's not the real problem. It's not so much you learning to love other people more. What James is going to teach here is there really is a connection between your relationship with others and your love and submission to God. That is what is primary. Now, we know these verses in James 4. We we love them. We quote them. We we, we share them with one another. But remember, they're not out of context here. We got to take the unit. We got to take the discourse and understand it the way James intended. In order to have unity in your relationships, you must maintain a humble, single-minded love for God. I'm going to say that over and over in many different ways in our time together. This afternoon. Okay, initial observation in this paragraph, James 4, verses 1 to 10. Number one, James is writing to believers, he's writing to the church. 
He's writing to those who, according to verse 5, have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And he says in verse 11 that they are brethren. So he's writing to believers. So guess what? Even in church, there can be conflict. Even in a Christian household, there, believe it or not, can be conflict. He's writing to believers. Number two, the context, just an observation here, the context is conflict in relationships and the solution to conflict in Christian relationships. And then a third, just simple observation, initial observation, is that vertical grace and humility toward God is what fuels horizontal unity and harmony with others. I'll say it again. Vertical grace and humility will fuel your horizontal unity and harmony with others. So this passage, oh, it's so clear, it's so helpful, it's so relevant. It provides the key to unity in our relationships. And as I mentioned last week to parents, I tried to give a little bit of a helpful uh, pattern and paradigm for parents as we par- parent our children and discipline them rightly and deal with conflict in our children, which is good for us as well. Today, this is so relevant for all of us. Yes, parents, of course, grandparents, of course, every Christian, of course, men and women, this is so needed for all of us. So what are the three important lessons that we need to know for unity? Here's the outline that's going to carry us through the rest of our time. It's very simple. Number one, you must receive the warning from God. Number two, you must know the warmth from God. And then number three, you must understand your walk before God. The warning, the warmth, and then the walk. So let's begin in verse 4, which is where James continues in this discourse talking about unity, talking about church, family, and ministry, and how to grow and minister in the midst of conflict and quarrels in the midst of God's people. Here's the first lesson. we got to hear the warning from God. Where do conflicts come from? According to verse 1 and 2, it comes from your own pleasures. Our conflicts, our anger, our quarreling, our bickering comes from my ruling heart cravings, my wants, my desires, my needs, my expectations. And when I don't get what I want, I respond with anger. James 4 picks up on that. Look carefully in your Bible at verse 4. We must be humble when we hear this. Because God says, you adulteresses. What? Adulteresses. Yeah, the, the real root of our conflict is our selfish desires within us. And when I am in conflict, 
And I'm selfish, and I crave, I want, I have a ruling desire that is mastering in me in that moment. It's like Pastor James is saying to the believers in that moment, it's like you're not worshiping God and devoted to him exclusively. Because in that moment, you're devoted to yourself. Now, Jeremiah talks about the people of God considered to be the wife of the Lord. Hosea talks about that as well. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. That's true. And what does God want? He wants faithfulness. Faithfulness. When James says, you adulteresses, it's a figure of speech. He's not saying that there are adulterers running around the church. It's a figure of speech just like Jesus, his brother, James' brother, used in the Sermon on the Mount. It is a figure of speech for spiritual unfaithfulness to God. It's, It's a shocking phrase. It's intended from Pastor James to jar and to shake you and to awaken you from spiritual danger. What? You're calling me a spiritual adulteress? Sure, because in that moment of conflict and quarreling and anger, I am not exclusively and solely devoted to God's glory. I want my kingdom to advance. Do you get it? And so there there, there is a spiritual unfaithfulness going on in that moment. What do we have to get? Our conflict in verses 1 to 4 here is not so much a horizontal issue as much as it is first a vertical issue. Did you hear that? Well, there's anger. I'm bitter. I'm resentful. I wish they would just get payback. Well, stop being angry and learn to love them more. Well, that's not what James would say first. The solution isn't so much a horizontal solution, it's a vertical solution between your heart and God. The problem and the source of our interpersonal conflict is not first that I don't just love other people enough. First of all, it's that in that moment, I'm not loving and worshiping God enough as I ought. And James says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world, living for yourself, living for your desires, living for the things of this world, this is hostility or enmity with God. Don't you know that? Well, it expects an obvious answer. Of course the church knows that. Therefore, whoever wishes, but it may be a better translation from the Greek, whoever makes it his determined passion. Whoever makes it his passionate pursuit to be a friend of the world, if you're going to live worldly, if you're going to pursue the things of the world, if that's going to be your habit and your ambition of life, you're an enemy of God. And we, we constantly hear in the scriptures, don't we, warnings against worldliness. We are so often conformed and molded by this culture. We shouldn't be, but we often are. We so often are tempted to live like this world. We so often want to please and get acceptance and approval from this world. We, we seek pleasure and fun and happiness 
in this world. We, we pursue position and popularity and power and ease in this world. And really, when it kind of boils down to it, if I really uncover my heart, I live for me. What's best for me and what I want and what I desire and what's going to make me happy and comfortable. And what I, when I don't get what I want, I get angry. And when I'm angry in that moment because, hear this, my kingdom isn't advancing. It's like Pastor James is saying, here's a window into your heart. It's like spiritual unfaithfulness. Oh, that's so hard to hear. But yet it's so necessary to hear because God calls you and God calls me as believers to not live in worldliness because you can't live worldly and for God at the same time. To live worldly is, well, it's, it's disobedient from our call to be separate, 2 Corinthians 6. And if we live worldly, it's contrary to our new nature, Galatians 5 and 6. And if we live worldly, it's inconsistent with our heavenly calling, Ephesians 4. If we live worldly lives, it is hurtful to maintaining a heavenly mindset, Colossians 3. If we're living worldly lives, it grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. So our problems and our conflicts in our relationships, hear this, is not just because we don't love other people enough. The parents, we have a couple of kids that get in a quarrel and you say, okay, you should love your brother and you should love your brother and, and get along better and be more humble. And that's just an appropriate word and a time for that. But James would say that's actually not the first thing that should be said. The first thing that should be said is it's not that you don't love other people enough. It's because you don't love your God supremely. And because in that moment you're not loving your God supremely, you're loving yourself and your desires supremely. And that's why you got angry. Whoever wishes, verse 4, whoever makes it his determined all-out goal to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. We're going to go to Mardi Gras this weekend and preach that. And that's what you would proclaim to unbelievers. That's what you proclaim to people on a college campus. That's what we proclaim to our children. That's what we proclaim to unbelieving counselees. That's what we proclaim to people that you work with. You're living in this world. You're trying to find contentment in this world. I love you enough to tell you the warning. You're an enemy of God. And if you're an enemy of God, you need to repent. You need to come to Christ. You need to humble yourself so that you can be reconciled to God. I love that message in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been given that ministry of reconciliation. To be reconciled to God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Flirting with the world is as serious as unfaithfulness to your spouse. And it's like Pastor James is saying, Christian, wake up. 
Christian, let, let this jolt you a little bit. Let it wake you up. Be humbled. Receive it. Hear the warning from the God of love. It exposes our heart cravings. It exposes how we so often can be tempted to worldliness and give in to worldliness. We need to receive the warning from God. But James, so, so wisely, and and you know what? What makes this such a hard passage to hear and read and understand and receive is balanced so beautifully with point number two. You got to get this. Number two, the warmth from God. So we saw the warning, but now the warmth. What do you mean the warmth? What do you mean, Jeff? The warmth from God. Well, we serve an awesome God. We serve a glorious God. And he gives us the hard truth and the sobering admonitions that we're going to see in verses 7 to 10. But yet right now in verses 5 and 6, it's like God tells us, I love you. And I want all of your devotion. Look at verse 5. Pastor James says to the believers, he's spoken pretty honestly with them and pretty, pretty bluntly with them. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but God gives the greater grace. I was reading the story of, of an artist who submitted a, a painting of the wonderful, beautiful, mighty Niagara Falls to an art gallery and So he submitted the painting, but he neglected to put a title on the painting. And so when the art gallery received the painting, they had to put their own title on the painting. And the title that they chose to put on this painting of the beautiful Niagara Falls was this, More to Follow. More to Follow. Because the Niagara Falls, I mean, you got billions of gallons of water, I mean, just spilling over the edge for years and years and years constantly. More to Follow. More to follow, more to follow, more to come, more to come, more to come, more to come. What a fitting image of God's grace. More to come, more to come, more to come. Billions of gallons, as it were, of God's grace swarm you, surround you, support you, undergird you, secure you. And it's like God is saying, there's more to follow. There's more to come. You'll never exhaust the infinite measure of the grace of God. You think, what does that have to do with unity in the church? Everything. Because you might read verses 1 to 4 in James and your heart is exposed, your sinful desires are on the table, and you think, is it really possible to have unity? I'm such a sinner. I'm so selfish. Is it really possible? And God would say to that, absolutely. It's absolutely possible. Why? God would say, because I live in you, because I dwell in you, Because I love you, because I'm jealous for your affection, and I will give you the infinite supplies of powerful grace that you need to live out the Christian life. 
That's verses 5 and 6. This is the warmth of God. It's the tenderness of God. This is what you need. This is what I need. This is what marriages need. This is what friendships need. This is what dating couples need. This is what churches need. Verse 5. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? And then it's almost like a little parenthesis here. By the way, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, the English translations are quite different on the end of verse 5, middle of verse 5. The Greek is a little bit complicated because the word order is so different than usual. What the middle of verse 5 is saying is that the Spirit of God, which is God himself, the Spirit of God is dwelling, he is dwelling in believers, get this, get this, he's dwelling in you with earnest, passionate, divine compassions of love. He dwells in you and he yearns with jealous longings for your affection. This, I think, is the clearest verse in all of the Bible on the love of God the Spirit for true believers. He lives in you. He loves you. And maybe a a, a literal rendition of verse 5, after you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, would be this. Do you think... That the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us, he longs with jealousy for you. Which teaches that for every true believer in Jesus Christ, right here, verse 5 teaches that you have God, the spirit living in you. He takes up a home in you. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. Romans chapter 8 says the exact same thing in verses 9 to 11 when Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to God. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Christian, you have God living in you. All of God living in you, dwelling in you, taking up home in you. And the text says in verse 5, it is the capital S Spirit who jealously yearns for you. Now, I mean, get that. He yearns for you. It's like the Spirit of God would say to you, I am jealous. I am jealous for your obedience, affection, love, and allegiance. When I'm jealous for the affections of my wife, I don't want to share her with any other lover. Anything that would steal her love away from me would be met with fierce opposition. 
And yet here's God, the Holy Spirit, in the context of unity in the church, in the relationships. And in verse 4, when there's conflict, it's almost like we're committing spiritual adultery in that moment as we're not faithful to Christ in that moment. And the Spirit of God is in you and he's jealous for your soul affection. Do you see the connection here? The Spirit of God jealously yearns for you. Oh, we we learned the personhood of the Spirit. We learned the compassion of the Spirit. We learned the care of the Spirit, the affection of the Spirit, the jealousy of the Spirit for you. He wants your affection because he saved you. He regenerated you. He rebirthed you. You're made alive. He lives in you, and he wants all of you, all of you. Verse 5, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And then parenthesis, after all, it is the spirit who dwells in you and he longs with jealous longings for you. And what's that scripture that he just mentioned? It's this, verse 6, God gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We all know that. We could quote that. This is interesting. You know that first phrase, God is opposed to the proud? It's an interesting word. It's a military word, and it means one thing. You go to the front line, and you have one purpose. War. So we might say God is opposed to the proud, But maybe a more literal way to think about that, God is at the front lines and he's waging war with the proud. He's waging war with the proud. In context, why that? Why why Proverbs 3 verse 34 is the quote here. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why that? Because The proud person is the quarreling person. The Proverbs say that it is from a haughty spirit that quarreling comes. Any fool will quarrel, the Proverbs say. The proud, prideful person is the quarreling person. Because why? I demand my right. I live for myself. I'm worldly. I want my pleasure. I want my desire. I want it. I want it. I want it. It's a me-centered mindset. And the problem with that is pride. And as we're looking at all of this together in context, precise theology should totally produce profound humility. As we are precise in understanding God's word, it ought to produce humility. That God, you live in me. That God, you dwell in me, never to leave. That that God, you're, you're jealous for my love. He is jealously yearning within me. 
How are we to have unity? It's like Pastor James says, I know what I just said was pretty hard in verse 4, adulteresses. But God lives in you. And he loves you. And he's jealous for your affection. And he, and he wants your obedience. And he wants your full allegiance. And our conflicts come because of our pride. And just so we remember, God is at war with the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And notice the very beginning of verse 6. We can't skip over it. It's one of the most comforting phrases, perhaps, in the whole book of James. God gives a greater grace. Do you see that? You can go to the drunkard. Say, you may be a big sinner but God has a greater grace. You can go to the fornicator and say, you may be a great sinner, but God gives a greater grace. You go to the self-righteous church attender who says, I'm good. God gives a greater grace. One commentator said, the grace that God gives is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You know, all this reminds me of the Ten Commandments. We're thinking a lot about the Ten Commandments. We're starting that in the Family Bible Hour here next week and at 2 o'clock. And you think about the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. And you open your Bible there. And and we we know that, that when God gives this Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in context, he doesn't begin by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't begin with that. God always begins with gospel. Well, where do you get that? Verses 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you. I bought you. It's like God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God says, I redeemed you out of slavery. You're mine. I did all the work, all by my power, by my outstretched hand, to redeem you, to deliver you, to rescue you. You're mine. Now because of what I did for you, you live for me. You shall have no other gods before me in Ten Commandments. That is what God does. He's a jealous God. He saves and delivers and rescues, and he's jealous for their obedience. Exodus 20. Well, similarly, Christian, God saves you. He's jealous for your obedience. He's jealous for your love. He wants your exclusive love for him, your passionate love for him, your ardent love for him, your single-minded love for him, your satisfied love in him. He wants you to be engaged in love to him. Why? Because he is jealously yearning for you with that kind of love as well. What a warm love of God the Holy Spirit. What an amazing God. So James is writing, speaking about unity, speaking about conflict in the church, speaking about how we grow from conflict. And he talks about the source of the conflict, verses 1 to 3, being our own hearts. And then he gave the warning, you adulteresses. But then he gives the warmth, number 2, 
The Spirit of God lives in you. And God gives a greater grace supplying what you need. But now I've got to give you the third heading. Third heading, and it's this. You must know your walk. Your walk before God. What does God want you to do? Okay, so there might be conflict in the church and there's quarrels and fights and conflicts among you. Well, what do I do? How do I live? Before we go to the text here, let me just give an illustration. A young boy comes to his father one day and the young boy knocks on the door and the young boy says, Daddy, I measured myself and I'm eight feet tall. And the father said to the young boy, son, you, you know you're not eight feet tall. And the little boy said, well, yes, I am, Dad. I measured myself. I'm eight feet tall. I'm eight rulers tall. The father said, take me to that ruler. And so he walked with his boy to see what he was measuring himself with, and he discovered that it was a six-inch ruler. And the point of that simple anecdote is this. You can always get taller if you're using the wrong standard. A lot of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think because we're using the wrong standard. It's like, well, I compare myself with that person and I look with that person. I compare myself to those people and I'm better than them and I'm better than them. And we get pretty tall. No, we need to measure ourselves with the right standard. What's the point of now verses 7 to 10? What is Pastor James saying? It's this. You need a single-minded love for God that's humble. Measure yourself rightly. Be humble. And I'll just simplify this. You must take your sin seriously. And it's the context of fights and quarrels in the church. you got to take it seriously. You can't ignore it. You can't shrug it off. You can't say no big deal. You can't, you can't just sort of imbibe in more worldliness. No, no, no. The central exhortational pastoral section of the whole book of James is right here. Ten rapid fire commands. Ten of them. And it all is sandwiched in the middle of verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10, look at it at the end, humble yourselves. So verse 6 and 10 are about humility, and everything scrunched in the middle of that is this. Take your sin seriously. Be humble. Ten commands. It was years ago, we were putting an addition on our home, and it was early morning, probably 6.30 or 7 in the morning, I was downstairs at the desk doing some reading, all the kids were asleep. I was literally jolted at my desk at the shaking of our house, because a jackhammer had gone to our backyard And that jackhammer had come, and he began doing his work, and as he did that, he shook the whole house. 
it, it jolted me and it woke up all the kids. That is exactly what James is doing here. It's like a jackhammer. Ten commands, one after another, after another, after another. Why? To wake you up, to shake you, to jolt you, to jar you, to make sure that you're alert. How do we have unity? How do we maintain unity in the church? Well, in verse 6, God gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, we're commanded to humble ourselves So we need to humbly walk before God. James, in all these commands, we can boil it down into four ways. You humbly walk before God first in submission. Verse 7, submit therefore to God. Why would he say that? Because when I fight and when I quarrel and when I've got the ruling desires in my heart, guess what? I'm not interested in submitting to God at that point. I want God to submit to me at that point. And James is saying, therefore, in light of all that I've talked about, remember, you must submit to God. He is Lord. He is master. You must obey him. He's Lord. Second, we humbly walk before God, not only in submission, number one, but number two, we must humbly walk before God in spiritual warfare. Why would I say that? Because verse seven continues with the second command, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice James doesn't say rebuke the devil. He doesn't say cast out the devil. He doesn't say command the devil. He doesn't say bind the devil. There's no commands of that in the New Testament for us. He says resist. Resist the devil. And we do that the way that Jesus did it when he was tempted as it is written. As it is written. As it, the power is in the word. It's like Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our real battle in this world is not with people. It's not with legislation. It's not with laws. It's not with ordinances. It's not with presidents. It's not with false religions. Our primary warfare is spiritual. And even though it is invisible and unseen, it's still real. It's real. And James, Pastor James knows that. And he says, church, resist the devil. Why would he say that? Talking about unity. Because the devil divides. He would love to bring a separation between God's people. He'd love to bring a separation between marriages. He'd love to bring a separation between parents and children and believers in the church family. He is not the God of order. He is one of disorder and conflict and hatred and all lies and killing. 
James, Pastor James says, Christian, resist the devil. And and you stand strong. You're armed with the word of God. It is the sword of the spirit. You don't bind. You don't command. You don't cast out. You don't rebuke the spirit. You the, the, the devil. You resist him. Third, we not only humbly walk before God in submission and in spiritual warfare, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we, how do we humbly walk with God? Number three, in sweet communion with God. Verse eight, three commands here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's language from the book of Psalms. What's that? Be pure. Let your heart be pure. Let your heart be full of integrity. Draw near to God. He'll meet you there. Have your quiet time. The Lord is more eager to meet you there than you are to meet him there. Have that time of prayer. Why? The Lord is there. Seek the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Worship the Lord. Praise the Lord. Draw near to God. He's there. He'll meet you. He wants to meet with you. I love this promise. Draw near to God. And you see it here? He will draw near to you. So when you have those days and you just feel kind of cold, kind of lifeless spiritually, kind of prayer life isn't what it ought to be, your Bible reading has gotten sort of infrequent, You can open up to this verse and you can hold God to his word. Lord, I want to draw near to you. Please draw near to me. And he will. That's his promise. So fourth, we humbly walk before God in submission, spiritual warfare, sweet communion with God. And number four. To maintain unity, we have to humbly walk before God in repentance. Oh, these commands in verse 9, if you take them out of context, which some do, which is sad, you're going to get some wacky Christian living. Verse 9, be miserable, (laughs) mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. You yank that out of context, you're going to have a weird Christian life. The first command, to be miserable, means to to be wretched. Oh, what a sinner. Second command, mourn. Mourn. A passionate grief that can't be hidden. It's a loud crying. Similarly, the third command is weep. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Because when they used to pursue their pleasure, they were marked by laughter and joy. But now, Pastor James is saying, you need to turn your worldly laughter into mourning. He's not saying you can't have fun, you can't laugh, you can't be joyful. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, now is the time for your repentance. There's conflict in your midst. 
There's quarreling in your heart. There are times when you're spiritually unfaithful to God because we want our kingdom to advance. And I want my will to be done. And James is saying, stop your laughing. Stop your worldliness. And get serious about your sin. I mean, this is Pastor James speaking bluntly and boldly, yet lovingly to believers. This is the passionate call that James issues of a strong, powerful, all-out call of repentance. Well, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. Well, he'll forget about it. I just won't talk to them again. No, that won't work. Pastor James has, has just sort of exposed and excavated our hearts. And it's the sort of the raw sin is on the table. My selfishness, my ruling desires, my idolatry, my spiritual unfaithfulness. It's all right here. And Pastor James is saying, don't, don't think lightly of your sin. Repent of your worldliness. Make war with your sin. Draw near to God. Seek to mortify sin by the power of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. He's not saying never be happy and joyful and and full of praise and laughing. He says right now in your midst with the conflict, get serious. Get serious. And take your sin Seriously. It's kind of like Coach Brian. Coach Brian was a football coach for a university football team, and, and uh, he had high schoolers on campus for a summer camp that he was leading. And it was the few days of the teaching and the training of these high schoolers during the football camp, it was the few days when they were to focus on tackling. They were to focus on tackling, how to give a tackle, how to receive a tackle, the proper positioning for the physicality of the game. And and as Coach Brian was giving that classroom instruction, he recognized that they were goofing off during that time of instruction. They were laughing. They were distracted. They were joking. Clearly not serious about the task that was ahead of them, learning to tackle and receive a tackle rightly on the field. At one point, Coach Brian got really quiet. He hit the podium and he said, hey men, stop, listen, attention, look at me, wake up or you're going to get hurt. He had to get their attention. He had to jolt them. He had to wake these guys up because if you're not well prepared, you're going to get injured on the field. It's like Pastor James is saying to the believers, wake up. Take the sin seriously. So if we're going to maintain unity in the church, if we're going to expose and repent of and confess and excavate the sinful desires of our selfish hearts, 
And if we're going to deal with sin, if we're going to live in unity and live in humility and live with joy in one another's midst, we've got to be single-minded in our devotion to God. We, we have to submit to his lordship, not be worldly. We need to be awed by the great love of God, the Holy Spirit, that he jealously yearns for your affection, for your obedience, for your allegiance, and for your walking in his ways. And, 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 if we are to maintain single-minded love for God and unity in the church, we have to be serious over your own sin, my own sin, and fight for holiness. What hope this section gives. Oh, it's tough. It's convicting. I get it. But what gospel hope that there is God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who makes you born again. He's given you life. He has regenerated you. You have been born again by the word of truth, James 1 said, verse 18. He saved you. He dwells in you. He'll never leave you. He protects you. He secures you. He jealously yearns for you. What a a motivation. What a motivation to live for him. But, But if someone's here today and just there's a life of conflict... And there's no desire, attempt, true inward humility toward God to seek to follow him and walk in his ways. And there just seems to be no power there. I think James would say, examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is a conflict-free life. That's not what the Bible teaches. But are you serious with your sin? Do you seek to repent of your sin? When your heart is exposed and just laid bare on the table before the eyes of God with whom we have to give an account, do you try to cover it? Or do we confess it humbly and say, you give a greater grace? And you will help me to change. And he will. And he will. So Pastor James would say unity in relationships is possible. It is possible. We can grow from conflict when we love our God, when we walk in humility, when we repent of our selfishness. And I love how this is all brought together so beautifully in a hymn written by Keith and Kristen Getty called Beneath the Cross. Listen to these words. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand. And I wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. For hands that should discard me, they hold wounds which tell me come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy soul is one. Next verse, beneath the cross of Jesus, his family 
is my own. We were once strangers chasing selfish dreams, but now we are one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus? See the children called by God. Wonderful truth. Christian Christ Fellowship Bible Church, God gives a greater grace. What you need to live this out is supplied for you in the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Father, thank you for your word and the hard truth that we need to hear.